They should win the game. They get a point. We, we score a perfectly good goal. Make it 2-0. Game's done, done dusted. We win the game. Officials cost us two points today. It's standard. 10 past 10. Most of the children are probably in bed, but the, these, these boys are fucking mentality giants. It's unbelievable. And Shakiri hasn't he the funniest shape? He's a little chunky fella. They'll fight for the tree. The joke. Gone about far this, far that. Help the officials out. Clearly they need help. Clearly we play in the Premier League. It's a joke. It's a joke. So as we signed off on last week's show, some question marks lay over Ireland's footballing hopes. But I think it's safe to say that not only are we destined for automatic Euro 2020 qualification, thanks in part to a helping hand from the mighty Georgians, but Stephen Kenny and his kids are going to come along afterwards and take the world by storm. The good times are on their way back. Jack Byrne is the new and improved Wiz, and Troy Parrott is the great white hope in the green and gold. Hello and welcome to this week's Tree at the Back podcast. How are you, lads? Okay, Hello, compadres. So all that aside, I, th- I think it was a pretty successful week for Irish football on the national front with two wins from two on the senior state and a massive victory coming from behind for the under-21s against Sweden on Tuesday night. So we'll be discussing all the major talking points coming out of an oddly high-spirited international week. But there was less spirit on the domestic front as it was reported that Limerick FC have become embroiled in a match-fixing allegations which has highlighted the ever-growing stranglehold of gambling in Irish sport, be it through sponsorship, social and cultural trends and addiction. So on that story, we'll be speaking to the business post's Aaron Rogan about the latest on Limerick and the wider issues at large in Ireland when it comes to gambling in part two. Um, So lads, we won't spend too long on the Switzerland game since it was a week ago at this stage. It finished 1-1 with David McGoldrick scoring his first goal for Ireland late on. Um, it wasn't a classic by any means. Phil, where did you lie in the kind of two points dropped versus one point gained debate? Yeah, just before we get stuck into that there, Kev, I loved how in the intro you described our one-all draw as uh, being part of two wins from two from the senior team. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like a win. One-all draw. It did, it felt like a win. And I think that's the side I come down on. I don't think it's two points dropped necessarily against um, what... I think is look well. They're the number one seeds, absolutely, and they're probably the best team in the group. Um, given how the match is progressing and how late we ended up scoring, I think we can take the positives out of uh, out of a one-all draw, which seems to be our signature result. Uh, the results later in the in the international window have definitely improved that result even more, makes it look even better. Um, so I think while there's there was plenty for the lads to work on, and like you said, it wasn't exactly a barnstormer. I think we can be pretty happy not to have lost and to take a point from a pretty decent side who made it to the Nations League final in the summer. Let's not forget that. Yeah, I, I echo those thoughts, to be honest, guys. Like, if you, I remember kind of like feeling through the game, you know, it was kind of, there was this nearly inevitability of, of Switzerland scoring and then us replying then, you know, in that last minute, last 10 minute burst you know, of enthusiasm to get back into it, like, which is what it feels like we've been doing that for the last 10 to 15 years. Do you know what I mean? But, uh, like overall it was, overall there was, there was certain things, positive things that you could glean from it. And then in, in reality, even though we're top of the group, you know, and Georgia have done us a mighty favor. It just, you know, for instance, if the whole Stephen Kenny thing wasn't actually happening and these kids weren't coming through, like I think I would be a little bit more downhearted um, because I don't really see a progression um, or a, a major progression in how we're playing despite getting like half decent results. I think that's down to to the opposition actually kind of out of form or it's, it's more down to them than it is down to us, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, yeah. Overall, I, I mean, like you have to take the point. Like the, 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 this whole sort of, you would love to be winning your home games and getting the points away and getting you know your your point away from home. But um, we we seem to kind of draw every kind of game. I think it was like I, I seen a stat after the game. Where it was like our fifteenth one-one draw um, in, in in like the last maybe like three or four years was just incredible really um, but yeah I, I mean look Mick's there to do a short term job and he's doing it um, I felt for the first hour or so 
the Swiss were there for the taking. They were leaving a lot of space in behind mm-hmm. the kind of mm-hmm. the midfield area. And there was a couple of instances where we kind of we got in on on two on two and three on two situations that never mm-hmm. really uh, materialised. But I mean, after going one nil down, Ireland looked like a completely different team, and they have this weird mindset whereby like it's like the shackles are just completely off. And then it's like, we have to score here now. And more often than not, they do. Yeah. Like you said there, Keen, the, the, the record we have of one-all draws is, is fairly mad at this point. Yeah, isn't it? It, it? Isn't it that, like that, that. that? Sorry to cut across, Kev. No, I was just, I was thinking there when you said it, and I, I, it was, a, it was a, a thought that I'd had before. It was like, that has to be one of the great football questions out there. Um in terms of like, you know the way when a side goes down a goal and they inevitably fight back to, to, to level it or, or, or win it even? And it's like, the, the great question is like, why can't they, they do that for 90 minutes? And I mean, like, I suppose the answer to that question may be that if they could do it for 90 minutes, they'd be unbelievable. You know what I mean? They'd be a brilliant team and they wouldn't <laughs> be a team as where they are. But, but there is a thing, um, I remember somebody, I, I don't know where I heard it, but this thing called the psychic energy, the ebb and flow of psychic energy. Now that sounds very like Jesus came. What are you talking about here, right? <laughs> which I'm willing Where are you to going go with this? Which I'm willing to go with uh, for for a little bit. But I, I did hear hear about it, and it was essentially you know that the theory is based on any sort of in any given situation. The A side, if you put it into a sports theory, the A side if it's weaker, will have its opportunity to take advantage of the stronger side. It's basically where the, the, the game ebbs and flows. So essentially, Switzerland being the stronger, you know, the stronger alpha side are going and going and going for the goal. And Ireland are trying to, in essence, keep them out. Switzerland then basically score. And then the B side get that, you know, right, OK, we have to go for this now. It's it's our, like, it's our kind of, our time to kind of go at it. You know, that's, that's in essence, the theory. Um, so, yeah, I don't really know where I was going with that overall. But <laughs> basically, that, that's what I'd heard. <laughs> and tell me if I'm talking shite. But, but does that make any sense? I guess in an ideal world, you start playing like that from from the first minute. And it's kind of like a mindset whereby we either see this out and kind of work our way into a game and kind of see how it goes early on, which seems to be the Ireland way and has been for a number of years under the last couple of managers and certainly under Marin O'Neill there before Mick came in. Um, and then once you're kind of down, then you're kind of, the, that be the kind of underdog mentality um, kicks in, I suppose, where you have to score whether we lose one nil or two nil. It doesn't really matter at that point. Mm, mm. Phil, I'm, di- I'm dying for your I'm dying for your input here. Like, I think <laughs> ebb and flow of psychic energy. Was it? I want to get the quote right. The ebb and flow of psychic energy is basically that kind of old school notion of every side is going to have a purple patch, like. You've heard yeah. it like forever in the day when you were playing like schoolboy football as well. That like no matter how good a team is, we're always going to have a puncher's chance. Whether it's sticking one on Shane Duffy's head or they fall asleep or they're coasting or it's too easy or whatever. So I think there's there's loads to it. It's just the fact that like in a, in a, in like this very weird controlled situation of ninety minutes with all these rules, there's infinite number of possibilities and outcomes, and <laughs> some of those will eventually lead to Ireland maybe getting a goal. And all of them lead to Ireland drawing one all, apparently. Um, so mm. I, th- I think there's something to it. Um, and if anyone's looking for a test case of it, just look at how Ireland play against better sides or against worse sides. Because what happens is we just seem to sit back against everyone, become the the like regressive side. We let them dominate us. And um, then we kind of get a kick up the arse and we go one nil down. And with about six minutes to go, somebody heads in a goal. So I, th- I think Ireland are proof positive. Very keen, yeah. And I'll buy it. I-, I just love that I got in the ebb and flow of psychic energy into a podcast. I'm just absolutely <laughs> delighted, to be quite honest, lads. <laughs> I didn't realise um, we were on Joe Rogan this evening. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> right down his alley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Moving on quickly to, um, quickly. to the Bulgaria game. Um, so Mick, he made... 
10 changes for the friendly against Bulgaria and what was shaping up to be a fairly drab, uneventful friendly actually came out with a with a few talking points, most notably the performance of some of the debutants. Um, you had three players getting their first goals for the country and the performance of Jack Byrne in particular when he came off the bench. Phil, Mick seems adamant that the current starting eleven in terms of um, competitive games is locked in. Do you reckon anyone has done enough to to give him a bit of a head scratcher coming up to the Georgia and Switzerland games? Yeah, I I, I think um, the midfield three, the starting midfield three, and uh, Jack Byrne also came into that to supplement it. I think they've probably given him a bit of food for thought there because um, it was, I thought it was quite evident against Switzerland that the midfield that we had been picking got quite overrun. I thought uh, Whelan wasn't quite coping with the runners off his shoulder. Um, I thought like we were outnumbered against, like especially when Shara stepped forward. They just seemed to kind of have a lot of space to play into. So we might need a bit more dynamism in midfield. And I think uh, the midfield three that started, uh, Cullen and Brown especially kind of stood out uh, of the starters. Uh, Cullen, I think, got man the match in the end, didn't he? And like, mm, Jack, did, yeah. like Jack Byrne really impressed. <clears throat> and like everyone wanted him to do well because of what he represents and because like he's kind of had a rough trot of it or whatever. Uh, Mick seemed pretty adamant afterwards that Byrne could be an option to throw in off the bench, but that he kind of restated the fact that he didn't see him starting against uh, Denmark or Georgia away, which I think is probably on balance fair enough. But I think somebody like uh, Josh Cullen or Brown, Alan Brown's given themselves a, a, a squeak. Um, especially, maybe Mick might want somebody exp- as experienced as Glenn Whelan for Georgia, but um, in kind of the battleground of Geneva where he got quite badly played uh, last week against them, he might want a bit more dynamism. So I think the midfield the midfield is maybe the area where we struggled most against Switzerland and where the replacements were actually the best against Bulgaria. Yeah, I know we were talking off air before we came on just about how, you know, the, the, the Bulgaria game probably was a little bit more interesting in, ter- in terms of like dynamics and, you know, impressive performances. Um, but I would be absolutely shocked if it's given Mick food for thought. Um, and I would be even more shocked if it's, if it's going to change how he picks the team um, for, for the games against Georgia and Switzerland. Because maybe, depending on how the Georgia game goes, because obviously Georgia first down Switzerland, but it's, depending on how the, the Georgia game goes, I think he'll go with the same team. I think he'll go with the, with the midfield three of Harrahan, Whelan and Hendrick. Um yeah, I think he'll go with that midfield three um, because he won't want to shake things up. And because Mick, in general, I think in these situations tends to be that conservative kind of coach. And, you know, his remit is to get Ireland to the Euros. So I don't think he'll do anything massive to, to what he thinks jeopardise that. Um, and then if it if it does go all tits up against Georgia, we don't get the win or, he, God forbid, we're beaten, um, I think he might then change it. Um, for Switzerland, but I mean that's not to take away from the fact that there were some really you know some standout performances last night. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, Cullen and Cullen and, and Brown were really really good. Um, Cullen obviously wanted to get in the ball a lot, and Brown gives you that that attacking you know thrust from midfield. Um, and obviously he scores a lot of goals from Preston, has done since you know since he emerged um, at detail. Um, so yeah, um, I think it was a good performance last night, and we probably played a little bit more football. I think the quality of the opposition has to be taken into account, and the, the fact that you know it wasn't that much of a, a you know an important game, but like fellas definitely stuck their hand up without a doubt. And as Phil mentioned there, I thought Josh Josh Cullen looks very good in the middle of the field. Um, mm. If anyone was going to break into the side, it probably would him would be him. Um, but Mick has been so keen to reiterate that his starting eleven is is just that. Um, mm. And I've been kind of thinking: is he of the mindset that he has his team that he thinks can qualify for the Euros? It's not his job to give the likes of Byrne and Cullen and Brown an opportunity when you've Stephen Kenny, who will kind of have a, a free slate in terms of his national squad. I think he'll wait till, till that term comes in before before Brown or Cullen or Byrne comes in. But I think from what Byrne showed in particular, I definitely have him on the bench against Georgia 
maybe not the Swiss. And I think kind of as, as a lot of people pointed out, the Swiss are a big, they're athletic. Um, they'd probably give him a lot of problems in the middle of the field, but I don't see any harm in keeping him on the bench against Georgia if it comes to 60 or 70 minutes and it's, and it's deadlocked at nil all. Um, but I definitely think, and if you look at the age profile as well, like Josh Cullen is 23, um, Bourne is 23, Alan Brown is 24, even though he's kind of been on the periphery now for a while. Mm. Like these guys will get their chance eventually, you would imagine, if they keep up that kind of form. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, um, I think Burn, um, just just to, to go back to your point, Kev, I think like Cullen, yes, I, I think if anybody was to start, Cullen obviously, I think would be the one, um, maybe at the ba- at the base of midfield and or or even um, in place of Hurren. Um, I love that I'm getting Hurren right all the time now, um, but uh, I think Burn obviously, you know, made the biggest impression last night overall, um. And I get like I've not actually seen too much of Jack Byrne um, this year. I did see him up at Oriel Park when Dundalk beat Shamrock Rovers earlier on in the season. But he and he did he did play really well that night, you know, individually. But um, Dundalk obviously comfortably won the game. Uh, and I, I've seen bits and bobs of him on social media um, for for Rovers over the, the the course of the season. And you know, obviously. League of Ireland onlookers will be like really, really impressed with him and, and have done. And I mean, I think you can see from last night's performance that he does have that certain, how do the French say, je ne sais quoi, <laughs> uh, about, <laughs> about, like, about him. You know, he does he does look like he has that extra level in him. Um, you know, in terms of in terms of the League of Ireland, and obviously he's come from the Manchester City um, Youth Academy and, you know, he... he Bad players don't make that academy, essentially, you know. Um, so I would be, I, I, I do, a lot of Dundalk fans will kind of be up in arms about, maybe up in arms about that. But like, I think, I would like to say that Dundalk players under Stephen Kenny in the past have kind of paved the way for Burn, But I don't think that they actually have. Um, I was thinking about this the, the other day and, you know, the likes of Boyle and Towell who've previously been in squads, um, in, in Ireland senior squads. Like, essentially those players kind of, they jumped, performance-wise, they jumped to another level under Stephen Kenny in a really high-functioning team, right? But Byrne is an individual standout because of his talent in 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 a team, do you know what I mean? Do you do, 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 do you get what I mean? I like, you, yeah. He, he, yeah. He, and and that's why I think, um, that's why I think he 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 could go back to. I think that's why he could be and did show that he was a huge success last night in terms of his ability. You could see him on the ball when he see when when he was receiving the ball. You could tell that he was he knew what he wanted to do with it and he could execute it. You know his drops at his shoulder and his like little movements away, and then his like he'd get his head up and pick a pass. You know, so I mean, like that will definitely, I think, have emboldened McCarthy to to you know consider him to consider him a little bit. But I don't think it'll be enough to give him a start. Definitely not. No. Um, Keen, I'd be interested to, to get your thoughts on this, especially with uh, with how Horahan has started the season. Mm. Um, because we're kind of we're focusing on the midfield in terms of that's where the position likely is to change if it does at all. Yeah, I mean, the front the front three is settled, the back four is settled. Yeah, um, obviously aside from Stevens who will be uh, suspended for for the Georgia game. Who, do you think Horahan is much at risk, or would it, would Whelan be behind him? I mean, personally, I think Whelan. <sighs> He had those two games earlier on in the campaign against Georgia and Denmark where he looked unbelievable. But I think he's probably the weaker point for me at the moment. Yeah, I, I do. I, I struggle with Whelan. Like, obviously, like, I, I huge appreciation for Glenn um, at Villa because I understood what he, what he was being brought in for and what he could offer the squad at championship level. And the fact that... At, in that Villa squad, he actually played unbelievably well when Dean Smith came in and he was playing behind Jack Grealish and Jack Grealish and John McGinn. 
because essentially in those three you had that perfect midfield. You had the the wild the, the, the wily experienced campaigner with like a good bit of distribution and can read the game a little bit well. Then you had like McGinn, the the firebrand box to box midfielder, and then Grealish, the silky midfielder, could tie it all together. But with with the Ireland midfield the way it is, it doesn't have that same dynamic. So Whelan kind of gets a bit lost with Hurrahan because Basically, the, those those both those players are trying to get in the ball, right, and and kind of like dictate it, and they kind of play in the same sort of spaces. Um, and and Hendrick, if you compare Hendrick then to Grealish, who's the silky operator, he doesn't really have it as much. He's not a bad player, Hendrick. He's he's lovely in tight in, in tight spaces, but he just doesn't have the, that midfield doesn't have that same dynamic, and I think that's where it falls down. Personally speaking, I would be I would be tempted to play Hurrahan in the back as the anchor have Hendrick and then another whether it's a Jack Byrne or whether it's a Josh Cullen or an Alan Brown somebody of that ilk that can get in the ball and and you know and make something happen because if you have that there, there are certain caveats with Hurrahan in terms of his 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 acceleration it's not his pace his pace is not a problem it's his acceleration off the mark he, he's a bit sluggish and slow, so the ball can like and, and players can bypass him very very quickly. Um, and in terms of like you know defensive awareness, he's not exactly in goal. Um, Kante, do you know what I mean? He's not going to snuff out danger. Do you know what I mean? He's the type of midfielder that gets on the ball and will dictate the play for you. And obviously he brings huge um, advantages at, at set plays. So if if you're asking me the question, you know which one of the one which one of the two would I drop? It would it would definitely be Wheeling. Um, because I think Whelan just in in a in a submissive midfield that doesn't essentially want the ball, he's not good enough. He's not mobile enough, and he won't dominate um, like Kante will, you know, in defensive situations. Which is what happened to us against Switzerland. They're just bigger and more athletic, and they'll just run over the top of you. Um, but if you try and play a little bit more football, which Harrahan will give you, um, I think he's it's it's definitely more advantageous. That's a long answer, but yeah, that's that's kind of what I, my thoughts on it. I think it'd be a, a shame not to, to spend a couple of minutes on the under twenty one team after their um, unbelievable win against the Swedes last night from uh, from one 0 down to uh, to three one up. Since Stephen Kenny took over, there's kind of been a spotlight on this team some of the talented players there but it's like a lot of that they could maintain this into uh, into their club careers and maybe even into the into the senior setup. Um you've a core there from from the League of Ireland, um Daryl Lahey and uh, Daniel Mandrew from Bowes, um Zachary El Buzedi from Watford looks looks a rightly talented player. But um I think the star of the show has to be at the moment has to be Troy Parrott um and what he did when he came on off the bench um He's been named in Spurs as a Champions League squad. Whether he makes a minute there or not remains to be seen. But it's hard not to get excited about this kid, isn't it? Oh, it, it's it's incredible. I mean, like I I was slightly too young to be properly plugged into when Robbie and Duffer broke onto the scene, um, back in the late nineties. But by all accounts, this is kind of the first swell of that since. Uh, like we've had we've had good good young players. Namely Rice and Grealish, we lost both of them. But like a prop properly like genuinely exciting attacking talent who puts the ball in the net, it's kind of the, the the first person to come along who's really kind of moved the needle since kind of Robbie and Duffer. So you can't both get excited that he's like he's he's at a brilliant club, um, and probably at one of the the top English clubs that it might be easier to get minutes out. I mean, not that it's going to be easy, but like if you're at City or Liverpool or United, you see him get swallowed up maybe easier than he might do at Spurs. I mean, he, he may never actually make the first team. Who knows? But it feels like there's more of a pathway there from. Um, and then you have to just stop and remind yourself that he is only 17, still only 17. And like when he didn't start last night, when he didn't wasn't named the starting team last night, and, you know, people are... Just a small bit of a surprise on social, and you kind of have to stop yourself for a second and remember that he's actually playing an age above. Well, he, he like he's he's still an under eighteen player, but he's good enough to play for the twenty ones. And he played the game before, and that like a seventeen year old doesn't normally play for the twenty ones unless he's an exceptional talent. And the calls to have him in the senior squad, well, completely understandable. Again, he's seventeen. He's playing under twenty three football for Spurs, and 
he's in the team for the 21s, but he's not like a guaranteed starter. So it's incredibly exciting. I think it's important that while everyone enjoys his emergence and like watches his two goals on repeat as much as they possibly can, that people do remember that he is 17 and not to get too far ahead of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, he's 17. Like, I was going to my Debs before he was born. You know, like, that is absolutely depressing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and like, imagine how many goals that kid would score for the Irish under-17 side. Do you know what I mean? It must it must be like park football to him. Um, again, I've only seen bits and bobs of him. I mean, like there's, I, I, I would gather there's not too many people, Irish football fans, who've seen a lot of Troy Parrott um, and, and can tell you exactly what his ability is at senior level. Do you know what I mean? We've we've literally we've seen these you know these two goals that he scored last night and the and the the the, the, the goal he scored against Azerbaijan last Friday. Um, so I mean, like his movement seems to be frighteningly good. Like he just seems to have an innate awareness of where to be um, in the box, and his finishing looks unbelievable. But I mean, like this whole sort of you know, Phil, you were talking about there, and like you know, it's easy to get into the sports side. I mean, like Harry Kane's basically the best number nine in world football. Do you know what I mean? Like, how how good does Troy Power have to be to dislodge this fella? Do you know what I mean? So it's like, I'm a little bit worried for him in that sense. Um, but, I mean, like, if you're watching this under-21 side, and, and even the under-19s to a certain extent as well, I mean, like, how do you not get the feeling? Like, boys, you might be a little bit too young for this, but I was I remember watching, like, Care's Kids coming through in the under-20 um, World Championships um, in Africa. Was it in Africa? It was years ago. Um, yeah, Nigeria. Uh, yeah, it was in Nigeria. I remember, like, sitting up as a kid watching it, looking at Duff and all these guys coming through, and I was just like, Jesus, like, these guys are unbelievable. And I have that same gut feeling about these guys coming through. <laughs> they just have it everywhere. Like, the guy, did you see the guy Mandrius touches? Yeah, um, beautiful. I, I think the FAI put like, oh, like how have you even seen that flick to go around the corner and just know that player was going to be there was just beautiful. But I mean, like, um, even on, on was it Friday night? I think the uh, the Azerbaijan game and the bench was just packed with talent. Like, and like, oh, it was just it was just a massive buzz. And I think like that kind of like everybody's feeling like that. And I think that's kind of like pissing off Mikovic and <laughs> oh, to the point where yeah. he. Definitely. Oh, it definitely is. It's, it's needling him a little bit because you know he's doing a good job for you know in all intents and purposes, and you know he's 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 got us top of the group and the seniors, and everybody's kind of raving about this this you know under twenty one side. But like yeah, like you just go through the, go through the list like Afalabi at um at Celtic, and you got Parrot, and you've got you've got the, the keep look at the keeper situation that yeah. we're gonna have. Like, we're going to have, fingers crossed, we're going to have three unbelievable young keepers, mm. it, like, coming through. We've got uh, Lee O'Connor at the back, who's just gone from United to Celtic, and Masterson, I think he's at QPR. And you've got Scales, Lean Scales, I think. Is he still at UCD or has he moved on? Um, like, in midfield, Malumbi, um, yeah. Millwall, he's so, if he doesn't, he looks a good if player. he's not a few... Oh, if he's not future Ireland captain, he looks a really you know, good player. Uh, oh, he's so good, box to box, like he absolutely runs over the top of, play, of of teams. Like, like, and you know, you have it in the wings as well. And and it's not even this under twenty one crop; it's the crop mm. coming behind them. So it's just, yeah, I'm absolutely buzzed off my face about it. <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned the strength and depth there. I mean, how jealous must any previous underage manager for Ireland B when Kenny has the opportunity to bring on Troy Parrott who's at Spurs he brought on Gavin Kilkenny who started a, a cup game for Bournemouth uh, the other week and bring on Adam Ida who's, uh, who's on the periphery at Norwich I mean oh, yeah. the, the strength and depth um, <laughs> it's probably not something we've seen before for a long long time Lots and like in in all this, uh, I know Keen, you referred to the wingers. We haven't mentioned Aaron Conley by name, and like Aaron Conley, bloody hell, an absolutely smashing player, player Premier League under twenty three player of the year last year for Brighton. Um, like his assist, <laughs> his assist for um, oh, Parrot's goal last week against liquid the football. Like it's the confidence these guys have, and I think it's 
like it's just set in such stark contrast to the way we've been talking about the Irish team. Like Mick's doing his job, but he hasn't played in a certain way, and we're all saying that we'd love to see him have developed the style a little bit more. And then you see these guys with the amount of confidence they have, and because they're used to winning games for Ireland, like there's there's not that many people in the uh, in the senior squad that have once gained a significance for Ireland uh, outside mm-hmm. of people who were in the Euro 2016 squad who won kind of one significant game. But these guys are used to playing in Euro tournaments, which is <clears throat> not something that Irish underage teams have always been able to take for granted. 21s have never made it, but the guys who have played under 17 and 18 have, have made Euros. And they're used to winning games and used to playing against really good level players of their own age at, at Premier League clubs. And I, like, it, just, it feels like a bit of a joke, not just on previous underage managers, but kind of on Mick, that like, there's this unbelievable generation coming. And... Mm. It, not not just that he can't touch them, but that everyone's talking about them instead of his team, like you were saying, Keane. It's, it, it, mm. it's and Stephen Kenny. And Stephen Kenny is going to be their, is their manager now and is going yeah. to be their manager at senior level. Yeah. Like, by by absolute sheer buffoonery, <laughs> right? <laughs> buffoonery. You know, this, this plan that was hatched like looks like it could be an absolute master plan. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. So it's, it's amazing. I tell you, Rob, I can remember his name. Rob Little. He died. He ran away and left his wife for a young. And depends on the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket, you have eggs class one, class two, class three. And some are more expensive than others, and some give you better omelets. So when when the class one eggs are in waitrose and you cannot go there, Real Madrid is no Barcelona. It's office small team. Have many problems. I want my players play with balls. We're on with Aaron Rogan of the Business Post to talk about the latest on Limerick FC match-fixing allegations, as well as gambling overall and its vice grip on various facets of sport in Ireland. How are things, Aaron? Not too bad. Thanks for having me on. So last week, it was reported that investigations had been launched into unusual betting patterns involving two Limerick FC matches earlier this season. It's not the first time a League of Ireland club has been embroiled in such investigations after Bray Wanderers found themselves in a similar situation in 2017. Now, Limerick's financial difficulties have been well reported at this point. Um, and since last week, last week's news, the, the club has gone into examinership. Um, there's been a failure to pay wages over the past couple of seasons. And, and I think since the beginning of this season, all of their players are now operating basically as amateur players. Um we wait the findings of the investigation, but Aaron, I suppose, what led to this investigation and what is the latest on it overall? Well, what led to it is the usual um, pathway for these investigations to start, um, which is the integrity and compliance units within bookmakers are alerted by either traders or people in shops um, to unusual bets being put on. Um, for the Limerick and Sligo match, which was a more recent one, it was both um, there was unusual activity on online betting markets, in particular Asian betting markets, and also in shops. There'd been a lot of bets placed against Limerick. Um, it was a specific handicap bet in and around Limerick, which the people had been sort of alerted to this um, higher up in bookmakers, and then they alert. They do a bit of analysis themselves in the internet. International Betting Integrity Association, um, and then they alert UEFA. UEFA let, alert the FAI, and then we lead to the FAI's investigation. Um, separately, in this case, the Garda's National Economic Crime Bureau, which is the fraud squad, basically, they did their own investigation. Um, and that I understand, although the guards aren't... Um, as forthcoming with information, I understand it's more they're more concerned with the money making it onto the Asian betting markets um, as a potential sort of 
uh, issue with money being moved by uh, people who maybe shouldn't have that amount of money onto those markets, whereas the FAI are concerned with the integrity of the game, mm. uh, whether there was some sort of effort to orchestrate a result or um, a certain scenario within games. Over the weekend, you, you had a report saying that the anti-match fixing legislation in Ireland is well behind normal international stand, standards, according to um, the International Betting Integrity Association. Um, what what state is it in currently in Ireland? Is it non-existent or is there any genuine deterrent in place to stop players and teams attempting to fix a game? There are deterrents in the fact that there's, like the Gardaí can conduct an investigation into fraud and have done so before, um, and that the FAI can sanction teams and players and that could lead to criminal sanction. Um, But what the IBIA were saying basically is that gambling regulation generally in Ireland is quite poor. Um, The bookmakers generally, Paddy Power, have been very vocal on the need for up-to-date regulation, particularly as it uh, relates to online gambling, is that because there's no regulator there, there's no easy route to a government body um, to make a, a, not necessarily a complaint, but to raise a suspicion of uh, irregular betting or or match-fixing around a particular team. Um, There's a a sort of a side issue to this as well, which I know... um, some people within the betting industry, because I cover gambling generally, um, sort of raise questions about that these irregular betting patterns are pretty um, routine. They happen regularly enough, not to maybe to the scale that we saw with um, recent matches, but they're not always reported to the bodies, either because they're on maybe an unlicensed Asian firm or, or Russian firm or even um, British-based firm. Um, and it's only when the bet wins that they generally get uh, called out on it. Yeah. So it, it's more widespread than not. And that also has a virtue of the fact that it's quite difficult in a lot of sentences to, to fix a football match. It's not the same as throwing a tennis match where mm-hmm. you need one man. You need quite a number of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's where the difficulty lies of... Limerick have been found guilty of nothing. Um, their players are all being tarnished as match fixers now. Their names are being bandied about on social media and around Limerick and League of Ireland circles. Their videos are being analysed for mistakes. Um, you have to remember some of these players are under-19s called up into the Limerick team because, as you were saying, they're in financial difficulty. They're liable to make mistakes. Um, senior pros are liable to make mistakes when they're made amateur because the club can't... Uh, pay them. So it, these investigations have happened before and there's been no char- charges brought. Like the, the Bray and Waterford friendly, um, which you alluded to in 2017, that was a guard investigation in conjunction with an FAI investigation and there was insufficient evidence. I remember the months after that, I'm a Shamrock Rovers fan, I go to League of Ireland matches, everyone's saying, that's a definite fix, that's a definite fix. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very easy to draw up evidence on one side and say, look, this is clearly dodgy. But when you put it in the wider context, it may not be. And the FAI investigate a lot of these based on performance. So they get alerted to the regular betting pattern and then they go and look at the match and they go, hmm, that doesn't seem like what that player would usually do there. Or that was an odd move that led to a goal. Or, you know, he hasn't challenged for that ball. And... I mean, as I said, I watch League of Ireland matches. <laughs> Things happen in the League of Ireland. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a lower level. The players are more poorly played. They're at a lower quality, and a lot of times they may play. You know, even the top teams, Dundalk, are going to play. I think five games in sixteen days over the next while. Mm. Quality players are going to make mistakes in those circumstances. It, it's not, it's not the right way to, to to blame a group of players unless there's evidence that they've been involved in the actual fix as opposed to they led to what they led their mistake led to, was a contributing factor to um some gang uh, pulling a stunt on an asian betting market Aaron, it's uh, phil here uh, just to zoom out from the specifics of the, the limerick situation and the uh, ongoing investigation for a minute maybe look at the overall relationship between gambling and soccer in ireland um, like we all know that uh, Football and sport as a whole is a symbiotic relationship with gambling. 
Um, but in this market and in other markets over the last kind of 18 months or two years, we've seen a little bit of pushback to that. Uh, the GAA and the IRFU in this market no longer accept gambling uh, sponsors. The FA in England uh, have done the same now, albeit that was off the back of criticism over the Joey Barton situation. Yeah. Um, the Italian government looking at bringing in a ban on uh, gambling advertising full stop. And I know you were writing about the GPA looking for something similar during sports broadcasts. Yes. Um, while all this is going on, the FAI have a sponsorship with Sportpesa and they have they had a relationship for the match streaming with TrackChamp as well. Why do you think the FAI haven't followed the suit of the other big two sports rights holders in the market in uh, rejecting gambling advertising as kind of a societal um, point? Money. Um, <laughs> it, that's it. It, it. Irish football, I mean, I've spoken to Stephen McGinnis about this. I think it was... It could have been 2016 when that track champ deal was signed by the FAI. And he said that there's already basically the recipes there in the League of Ireland for match fixing, poorly paid players, wages going missed. You know, this is just in the general sense that we've seen in the League of Ireland uh, that adding this, uh, this betting streaming service to it, particularly because the matches are played on a Friday night when there, there wasn't a lot of other football being played then. Um, was going to lead to more pressure um, on the sort of the integrity of the sport here. Uh, Stephen McGuinness's PFAI, the Players' Union, don't have a great relationship with the FAI, it's fair to say. Um, the FAI saw the money. They saw it was direct money for the league. The league were happy with the track champ deal. Then the Sports Pisa deal was actually announced after um, I did a story with... Um, where the spokesman for the FAI had said that they were reviewing their relationship with gambling companies. And uh, the the inference was that they were reviewing it with a view to the, I think it was a Ladbrokes deal. I may be wrong on that, but it was, it was a betting company, a more widely known betting company, had the current sponsorship, betting partnership rather, uh, with the FAI and the men's international team. And that when that ended, the FAI would look to ending their relationship with gambling sponsorship. They didn't do that. And it's since alerted emerged uh, through the good reporting in the Sunday Times on the FAI recently that Delaney basically told um, an FAI board meeting we're signing the sports pizza deal I think he may even have told them it was it was signed or it was as good as signed when he brought it to them and we're just going to have to sort of take it on the chin we're going to get some pushback against this but they just need the money or they just want the money anyway um, with with the fact that there's a ban on alcohol sponsorship which would be another big link with watching live sports. I think it lets the betting companies in. Like, it's sort of question. Sports Pizza is a Kenyan-based um, bookies. They sponsor Cork City or have an association with Cork City. I don't think they have any penetration in the Irish market. But every, you know, a lot of the countries have this link with a, a gambling sponsor. And Ireland was open. Sports Pisa thinks, Jesus, there's you know, there's a bit of marketing for good value for us, and they and they do it. So it's just money. Mm-hmm. I suppose uh, to be fair to um, the FAI in that sense, they're not the only Irish sports rights holder to still accept gambling uh, no. money as well. Um, and it was, I thought it was an interesting point about uh, sports pays and not having any um, a- any market in Ireland. Really, that's something you notice not just in Ireland but in the Premier League as well. Uh, obviously, sports pays a sponsor everything, but there's the number of um, online gambling firms with no presence in the UK who sponsor Premier League teams. Uh, I, I, I suppose and presume that that angle is purely to to allow uh, access to data for creating um, betting markets for, and that kind of leads in hand down to things like you were saying, irregular betting patterns, or at least opens the door. Um, that's also a lot of those companies would be in the Asian markets to be bigger players in the Asian markets. And because the Premier League is so popular there, uh, being on a Premier League jersey, you know, it might not matter that that anyone watching on Sky Sports in Ireland or even in Britain um, has an account with whatever the firm is. Um, But it it will matter because they'll they'll have millions upon millions of people watching in Asia where they probably also do other advertising. So that's a big factor for them. on the data, I'm actually not sure how the Premier League data is given to the firms. Um, I know that the, I think the Sky Bet Championship and maybe below have a deal with someone who they they do the minute the in play updates, um, and they obviously pay the league for that privilege. Um, it's becoming more of an issue that sharing of data because 
the NFL have a deal with the crowd called Sport Radar, who do all their mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but obviously, because the American um, market isn't um, as open for betting, um, it hasn't been that big a deal. But but they've intimated that they want about two percent of either profits or turnover of all in-play bets by online bookmakers when they do liberalise the market there. Now, that would eat into the, the shares, but it would be an interesting um, development if if the data companies did start trying to take some of the profits off the bookmakers because then the leagues would, would go and look for that as well. Yeah, Aaron, um, I really, I suppose, like full disclosure here uh, from from a personal point of view, like I've actually worked within the industry for a number of years and a number of bookies. So, I mean, like I've seen firsthand kind of like the, I suppose the damage it does, you know, in terms of society and, 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 you know, how gambling can kind of can wreck lives and such. Um, I mean, in terms of, in terms of the, the, the wider societal issues that it does bring, like how bad do you think it is? Like what what level are we at here? Where it's like, is it reaching epidemic level with, with, with a certain demographic? Um, and you know, basically, what what are firms trying to do? Because a lot of it seems to be, you know, from the outside looking in, it's kind of like it's half-hearted efforts to kind of to kind of bring people in line and you know these kind of like be smart type adverts do you know what i mean yeah i mean well first of all it's a societal issue um i think the research suggests that addiction levels and problem gambling stays stable it's between sort of one and four percent uh you know one percent is very very severe you know losing your wife and home sort of problem gambling Mm -hmm. and then there's other you know, missed mortgage payments, getting yourself into debt and things like that on the scale. But the issue is that more and more people are gambling. So that percentage is becoming a, a bigger and bigger number. And um, there's also the issue that online gambling creates a different type of gambling. I, I spoke to a guy who was a, a, he was a customer analyst in Paddy Power. He since mm-hmm. left. Um, and he said he had a big issue with sort of 18 to 35-year-old men were weren't coming up on what they called spike reports, which is when you start depositing much more than you usually do and start losing bigger amounts. Mm. Um, even though they seem to be placing huge number of bets, maybe hundreds of bets over a weekend, but they're small bets, they're in-play bets. And he said yeah. it's a lot like compulsive gambling. These lads could have their gambling app on their phone open for four or five hours a day. Mm. Um, and he said that that's an issue because as they earn more, they'll bet more, they'll start losing a bit more. And, the, you know, gambling has become such a big part of their life and that's something that's not really looked at at all they look at losses both i mean in terms of government policy look at losses and in terms of the responsible gambling initiatives within companies look at losses more than anything which doesn't tell the full story because you know you can have people who can afford to lose a lot like we hear hear a lot of stuff about premier league footballers and 10 15 grand on frames of snooker and things like that but nothing to them. That's probably the equivalent of our ten or fifteen euro on the same bet. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a it's a big societal problem. It's something Ireland is uh, not dealing with in terms of government level at the moment. Um, I think the companies are trying to do a bit, uh, but at the same time, they have shareholders, and their shareholders only need profits. Um, the share prices have to go up as companies expand and. There's no two ways about it that they do make a significant proportion of their products, of their profits, off problem gamblers. So they're not going to cut out every problem gambler. They're certainly um, not going. They're going to err on the side of profit over social responsibility always. Do you think, Aaron, if and when um, serious moves do begin to come through, through policy and then more serious moves from the industry, do you think we're kind of past the, the tipping point and is uh, gambling? such an embedded part in our culture now that it'll be difficult to change behaviours. I know uh, when I mentioned Australia there before, what prompted their uh, their, their bans on uh, their, their watershed rather on advertising with the children as young as eight were referencing sport uh, using odds, betting odds. And I, I, I don't, don't have any data on it, but I'd, I'd be pretty confident in saying there's children of a similar age in Ireland who would, who would probably be able to do the same. Do you think that there's a generation now that's been embedded in too deeply to be able to do a whole lot about? Um, 
the, the odds thing is actually like I think that's quite interesting because I hear um, sort of teenagers under the age of eighteen when they're talking about football, they don't talk about it in the way I did, where you know, do you know Spurs have a chance against Liverpool? I'd go, oh yeah, you know anyone with Harry Kane has a chance, sort of thing. They'd be more, no, not at all. Sure, they're three to one in Liverpool or odds on. You know, you look at it that way. And mm-hmm. um, I think that's 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 as much about analysis on television and in papers. I would say it's sort of the grown-up way of talking about gambling. So I don't think it's just younger people. I think a lot of people consider th- their sport viewing purely through betting markets as opposed to, you know, you'd have some play- some guys who sort of favour tricky wingers over solid centre backs and go, oh, they'll always beat them or they have a chance when they've got a tricky winger. Um, on if we can change it, I mean, it, it's like anything. It takes education. Um, and at the moment, that's not happening because I think we're still stuck in the way of, of seeing gambling as something that's sort of uh, some sort of shadowy vice. And it's not something that can, you know, it's not seen as something that can be enjoyed healthily and as part of, you know, you, you know, your normal working week where you might look forward to having a bet on a match or something like that. And that's what it is for most people. You know, most people do just have maybe a few bets or an accumulator or they like betting on a a certain race at Cheltenham. But they're probably betting a bit more as the the company's gotten smarter about um, maximising their interactions with customers. I think education will be the big thing on that. I don't think we want to go down the route of just banning gambling because... You know, America, a lot of states in America have banned gambling. It doesn't lead to people, I mean, I'm sure it means fewer people gamble, but it means that the people who do gamble are sort of exposed to Tony Soprano and the likes of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, do you know, just just on that point, Aaron, I mean, at what point do you, do you kind of, in terms of personal responsibility, do you, does that play a huge part in it as well when it comes to problem gamblers and compulsive gamblers? Do you, do you know? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Like, I mean, personal responsibility has to be the starting point of all of these mm-hmm. discussions, whether it's alcohol, e-cigarettes, you know, watching football. You know, you, you, you see all this stuff about kids being addicted to computer games and things like that. I mean, it, I think that's the area where we have to be careful. Is that If it's children doing it, we, we don't accept that children have the same level of personal responsibility as adults. So be very careful about children's access to these things, first of all. But even within that, that we also accept that people who have an addiction issue, which is a health issue, um, it's recognised as a mental health issue, they don't have the same level of personal responsibility or, or personal control that we do. And that there is a role for um, bookmakers who have information that this person exhibits the same characteristics as a problem gambler there's a role there for bookmakers to step in or have a system where they, they put someone in a cooling off period. Or, mm-hmm. as I, I've done a few stories where I've spoken to Stuart Kenny, who was a co-founder of Paddy Power, and was, mm-hmm. um, he sort of made it the, the cheeky company it is. But he, he's left since, and he says what they have to do is make the product less addictive. Um, so you can't have a situation, he says that you shouldn't have a situation where you can sit down and lose every penny you have in a, an eight-hour session on an online casino. So there should be there's simple stops to that. And I, his suggestion is a, a mandatory deposit limit so that when you sign up for an account, you say, I'm willing to deposit at most €200 Euro in one go. And when you lose that €200, Euro, that's it until 24 hours pass and you can top up by €200 Euro again, or you mm-hmm. can wait 24 hours and increase the amount. Now, he, he would want companies to monitor that if people are increasing from 200 euro to 200,000 euro to step in and say, actually, we think that's too much. You can increase it to 1,000 or something like that. The bookmakers don't want to do that on a mandatory level, but they will do it voluntarily. So you can go in and set them yourself. So they, they do accept that this is a useful way of of controlling your, your betting, but they don't accept it so much that they'll just implement it outright so that they don't have people losing and this does happen regularly enough. And I've spoken to people who, who work in these sections of some of the bigger bookmakers that you'd have people ringing up at all hours of the morning, you know, going, I'm after losing everything I have on your 
online slot machine, can I have my money back? And you say, no, obviously not. You know, that's what you entered into. They're like, oh, but I was drunk. I came out from the pub and I didn't really, you know, consider what I was doing all this. And the bookmaker generally just says, sorry for you. That's how we operate. Now, they could very easily stop that from happening by having the mandatory deposit limit. Mm-hmm. They can't keep topping up. You know, there, there's, a, there's an onus of personal responsibility, but there is also corporate responsibility in that if you want to protect the the, the society that you you operate in as a corporation or as a company, that you do put these measures in place. And it seems to me that a lot of the measures are in place in um, casinos, uh, physical casinos, and in some shops um, where maybe they're small, It's they're in smaller areas so it's a little different but i have heard of people trying to go up and put big bets on and being turned away because they were told oh you bet too much now you're chasing your losses Mm. um there's corporate responsibility i think as well as personal responsibility yeah i think i I think some some bookmakers do do it better than others and will will enforce their own rules whereas you will have some who will definitely be a lot more lax and and in some cases They'll be, you know, they'll be. It won't be on. It won't be on. It won't be on. It'll be non-accidental, if that makes sense. I yeah. mean, like, I, I can't obviously. I'm not going to go into name bookmakers, but um, I, I know for for instance, like you've got examples of, we'll say, customer care outfits who will basically send customers who have deactivated. They will send them reactivation emails with, you know, a 10 or 40 bet, you know, and that does happen. It's happened on a regular basis um, in, in a lot of situations, which is, which is, you know, that's where, like, you know, you've got personal responsibility and then you've got bookmakers acting out of order. Do you know that can win? And, and there's not a lot of legislation that, you know, at, at the minute that will come down on bookmakers hard, you know? No, and I think that's why there needs to be an Irish regulator to look at those instances because, it, it, like, Paddy Power Betfair, um, they, they are actually, they're probably in the top five of online bookmakers in terms of their processes around responsible gambling and things, and they still have a lot of failings. Um, and I know they do invest in it um, and are investing more in it, and they admit internally that it's causing massive reputational damage and what that means to them is that they're scared of a share price drop off or, or or an overly restrictive law coming in. But at the same time, while all the companies will say that they have responsible gambling initiatives and things like that, they all have VIP schemes. And the VIP schemes don't relate to mm. people. They relate to people who have a high turnover account. Mm. And that doesn't matter if you're unemployed uh, or you know a Premier League footballer. If you have a high turnover account, you get knocked into a VIP scheme, which means there's a guy whose uh, end of year uh, paycheck depends on increasing the turnover in your account or maintaining it at a certain level and making sure that if you're one bookmaker, you don't go off to another. Um, and that guy is also tasked with implementing some of the responsible gambling initiatives. So he's supposed to stop you betting when he thinks you're exhibiting signs that you're getting out of hand. But at the same time, he's also supposed to increase your turnover. And, you know, that, that's just poor practice. That's just going to mm-hmm. be more bad cases and uh, more high-profile people going bust, you know, in terms of we've seen a number of GAA players who have been before the courts. Aaron, um, in terms of corporate responsibility, and I suppose speaking on my own personal experiences, kind of dabbling in, in, in certain markets, I suppose, in my college days when I when I had a bit more time in my hands, um, it always seemed like the bookmakers were quicker to protect themselves than they were the person making the bet. Um, so I suppose since the, the kind of the launch of online gambling and the, the, the vast amounts of, of markets available to, you know, on certain games and, and some bookmaker websites were even willing to, to, to show live games and provide stats. Um, so I suppose I've experienced instances where, say, if you back, regardless of, 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 of how big or small the stake is, if you back, say, an obscure game in Iceland or some kind of far-flung country, you're kind of on the radar quicker than you are 
betting huge amounts of money on the Premier League and losing huge amounts of money on the Premier League um, and you're quicker to have your account deactivated. I mean, it's happened myself. And then I think Declan Lynch's story with um, with Tony Ten yeah. kind of brought that to attention where he was being brought to Ireland matches. He was brought to the Europa League final. I mean, there's, there's a certain different way of which some gamblers or some gambling companies seem to treat small winners versus large losers. Yeah, I mean, if you, uh, this is just uh, an example, if you were into long distance, long distance running and there was an Irish cross-country race on and you, you know, made 800 euro with a, a 100 or 200 euro bet on, on the race, um, you'd be watched and restricted uh, fairly quickly. Really immediately. Nearly immediately, once that probably before you were actually won the bet. Once the person watching that market saw that you were on his book and he saw that he was about to come out on the wrong side or his 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 balance wouldn't be up at the end of the day, he'd have a note in your account. The note I've I've got people to put in these subject access mm-hmm. requests, so you can request these online if you have an online account. All the information a bookie holds on you, and sometimes they just say something like, uh, you know dangerous on Icelandic football and, you know, knowledgeable about Swedish women's yeah. football, you know, they may not actually restrict you. Uh, they often will, Galera on the side of restricting because there's someone who manages that market and it's such a small market that a small bet will alert them that someone's got a bit of knowledge. Um, whereas, I mean, the, the liquidity in the Premier League markets is, you know, it'd be scary to think how much money goes through them. Um, and any live televised sport, um, you know, doesn't doesn't matter what it is. If it's on television live, the liquidity goes way up, which is why I think it's a bit strange that when the bookmakers uh, admitted in the UK that they were linking live watching live sport too closely with uh, gambling, mm-hmm. they decided to have their whistle to whistle ban, and they decided that. Well, Paddy Power and Boylesworth decided that they didn't want that in um, Ireland for the GAA, you know, as if there's some difference in the Irish psyche to the British psyche when it comes to watching live sport. So to finish off, I suppose, what, what do you think the next day, uh, stepping back to uh, the Limerick situation, what do you think is the next step there in terms of kind of investigating that story? I don't know at the moment what's happening or what developments there will be. Um it just seems a strange one. So the, like with any of these, they say that, you know, it seems that you have a fact on one side that there was an irregular betting pattern, that there was too much money in effect put on a game of this size for it to be a straight game. And then you have on the other side, the only way of proving that, unless you've got an email from, you know, someone to a player in the team saying, oh yeah, lose this by four goals. Um, the only evidence you can have is that it looked a bit dodgy. So I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I don't know if the Gardaí investigation is part of a wider investigation. That could be something if they if they were following this money from a different source and saw this is where it was going. Um, I don't know if the FAI um, have even really started their investigation into this. I mean, they're still investigating Limerick for the Shelburne match. Um, and that's been open since whenever april i think that hasn't come to a conclusion either way and um, they haven't actually charged uh, the fai charges they haven't actually said anyone's broken any you know rule eight subsection three yet and that so they haven't leveled a specific accusation at any player that i'm aware of um and i don't know how close they are to doing that either mm-hmm. uh, there's also the issue of you know if it's a specific player and it's the fai investigating um, or if it's a group of players and it's the FAI investigating a few players within a team, and I'm not talking about Limerick here, I'm just talking about generally. If it's the FAI doing the investigation and those players go, oh, we, you know, we're strong here. I don't know what's to stop them, if they're already amateurs or on short contracts, to stop them just walking away, mm-hmm. um, leaving the club. Presumably the clubs would be more than happy to let them go if they were to be found doing something like that. And then I don't know what the FAI's recourse is because... The FAI don't employ them. The FAI don't have any jurisdiction over them if they're not footballers. It's in, you know, it's. I'm not sure where where that what would happen there. So it, it's far from, um, a case of that you're going to find out that there's 
you know, a number of players up in the, the dock in, in a district court or a circuit court somewhere when these investigations start. They seem to start and more often than not just end without any um, evidence that's sufficient to bring any prosecution. Yeah, I assume that's why they confiscated the, the Limerick players' phones. Um, that was obviously one of the major parts because, you know, you can analyse a football game and like you were talking about earlier on, it's like good players will make mistakes. The best of players will make mistakes. And how do you know that that mistake was actually intentionally got to do with a betting fix? So, yeah. I mean, like in terms of pr- pr- prosecuting players, it must be incredibly difficult unless you have tangible you know, evidence of this player said this and this player was linked to uh, some sort of betting ring or something like that, you know? So, yeah, I can understand why it must be difficult to bring prosecution to it. And, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, that's a big issue that unless you, for instance, had a player, you know, I mean, that's why most often when players are sanctioned about gambling and sport, it's that they've bet on the league or the team that they're involved in or a competition that they're involved in. Mm. It's not provable. Um, it just seems like, you know, the bar for evidence is very, very high, but these investigations start and there's a lot of rumour and innuendo about big groups of players and people look back and go, so this is plainly obviously fixed. And then we never hear anything out, out about it. And I'm not saying the FAI shouldn't do these investigations when they're alerted to, they absolutely should. Um, but there should maybe be a bit more transparent um, in in some instance, maybe there should be, you know, but then again, I suppose there's libel laws and things like that to consider. But it just seems that this damages the integrity of the game almost as much as if it's proved mm-hmm. that match fixing. It's yeah. really, not only is there, you know, the the sort of perception is that not only is there match fixing, um, the league so crap that there's match fixing, but also the league is so crap that they can't even catch it. Mm-hmm. You know, because people yeah. think it's obvious match fixing, even when it's not necessarily obvious. Um, and it does just, it damages just the suspicion of match fixing, always damages the integrity of a league or, or a team. Yeah. In essence, you know, the, the the issue, the gambling issue basically is not going to go away, but you're fighting the good fight anyway. Um, I don't know if it's fighting the good fight, but I just think there needs to be more transparency about all these things. Yeah. Um, in terms of how the bookmakers operate, how match fixing um investigations are conducted and how they operate but I mean it's sort of in that bind of that would be accepted there's gambling in the world and most people enjoy it and um, but there are consequences to it and we just have to be a bit better about uh, how we deal with those consequences. Okay Doc I think we'll leave it there for today um, very interesting chat with you there Aaron um, and a story we'll, uh, we'll keep a close eye on over the next couple of weeks thanks for joining the show. Thanks lads Thanks, thanks Aaron, Aaron.